and you're listening to teaching from Central Church in West Columbia, South Carolina. We hope that this message will help you experience Jesus in a new and exciting way. For more information, please visit us at centralnazarene.org. I've, uh, kind of focused on the idea of waiting, knowing that, uh, or recognizing in the scriptures, both, both in, uh, in the scriptures and in testimony and in my own life, a key to the fullness uh, of the spirit or the spirit-led life uh, involves this, uh, this idea and practice of waiting on the presence of God. And um, I don't know why, that is, except that uh, God's worth waiting on. And if you don't have time to wait on him, you're not going to get it. You're just not going to have a close, intimate relationship. I just think that's true. The scriptures bear out over and over again. They that wait upon the Lord. Uh, when, when, uh, when there is a, a demonstration or manifestation of the Spirit of God, almost always the people have been waiting or in prayer uh, and in singing, just waiting in the presence of God, and there is this outpouring of the Spirit. And then today, uh, it dawned on me as well, and I, I know that you know all these things, but I'm just bringing it to our attention in this moment, is that there is a second component to that, and I'm sure there are many others, but close to that is a, a spirit of unity, uh, where there is, the, on the day of Pentecost, they were together in one place of one accord, of one mind, and, uh, uh, and that, that's a second component, waiting on the Lord, and then a spirit of, of unity and a spirit of oneness. Um, and, and that's just really, really important. I, a friend of mine, uh, Carrie Willis, who is the, the district superintendent of uh, Pennsylvania uh, District, uh, made a comment just in the last 24 hours that it is amazing, it is amazing the diversity of the people of God. It's just amazing the diversity, both of opinion and of practice, of the people of God. Nevertheless, we are unified with one Lord, one faith, one baptism. So, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, and then, and then uh, someone said to me about something yesterday. I don't remember what the comment was. And I said, isn't it amazing uh, how that we, we all have kind of different opinions about stuff? And that's okay. You can have all kinds of opinions about stuff, but there's still one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is above all, in us all, and through us all. So it's all about Him as we try to move forward and as we live life. And it's okay, it is okay if someone doesn't agree with you. Isn't that amazing? It's okay. Uh, you don't have to agree with me. You don't have to agree with me. It's okay. Uh, that, agreeing with me is not going to save you. It's not going to change your world. It's not going to rock your world. It's just not. We may, we may just have an agreement about something, but it's, it's, it's not the answer. Jesus is the answer. Uh, let me say that again. Jesus is the answer. And so um, what I want to talk to you today is, is the key to, to it all. It is the summation. It is the kernel. It is the heart of the whole thing. And it is what we so desperately need in our individual lives and what we need in, in the world. And it is a prayer from long ago, creating me a clean heart, 
or a pure heart, O God. If, if God does this work in your heart and life, um, there is an amazing who you can have fellowship with. It is amazing how forgiving you are. It is amazing how easy it is to love even the most obnoxious of people. You can still love them. Uh, so let me read you this prayer of David. It's just a couple of verses. It's out of Psalm 51. Probably most of you know it by heart. And it says this, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. So um, that's the prayer. So to have a pure heart, to have a, to have a heart that has been cleansed by God, and that God the Holy Spirit has taken up residence and is ruling and reigning in your heart and life. That is the key to life. And it's, it's so important. And let me give you, uh, Moses prayed this prayer a few thousand years ago. The Lord your God, listen to these. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart. And, well, let me shrink this screen here. That doesn't happen when I have paper. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and your heart and the heart of your children to love the Lord your God with all of your heart. The Lord will do this. See, if the Lord doesn't do it, you can try and try and try, and it's not going to happen. But the Lord does this thing. And that's the difference when the Lord circumcises your heart, when the Lord moves in, when the Lord purifies your heart, it makes it all the difference in the world so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all of your soul so that you may actually live. Ezekiel writes these. In Ezekiel 36, he says, uh, and, and 25 uh, through 27, then, he's speaking prophetically, then, when I do this thing, the Lord says, <clears throat> I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I, I'm going to do this. I'm going to sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean from all of your filthiness, from all of your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you. Now, notice it's not you do this, you do that. This is, all, this is what I'm going to do. This is what the Lord says. And this is what makes the difference. And this is the difference between trying to serve, as John Wesley describes, trying to serve God as a servant or trying to serve Him as a son. It's the difference. Otherwise, your Christianity, your walk with Jesus will just be a drudgery. It'll be a hardship. You'll be hot one, well, on fire one Sunday, and next Sunday you don't even know if you're even saved. It's, it's just like... It's, it's the difference, what God does in the heart, in, in, in moving in and cleaning and purging the heart. Let me get back to the scripture. And I will give you a new heart. And I will, notice this is all God's work. This is all God's work. And I will put a new spirit within you. And I will take away your stony heart out of your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. And I, this is all Ezekiel. Line after line. And I will put my spirit within you. And I will cause you to walk in my statutes. And you shall keep my commandments and do them. 
That's some beautiful stuff. So guys, here's the deal. Here's the deal. You can, uh, you know, in some traditions, they take chains with uh, scraps of metal and they beat themselves. They just beat themselves till blood runs down their back. They, you know, and, uh, Martin Luther t- uh, wrote about uh, walking, not, not walking, crawling upstairs until his body just hurt. Um, you can, uh, uh, Paul talked about if you give your body to be burned. It all amounts to nothing. It doesn't accomplish anything. The thing that accomplishes it is to, uh, to surrender yourself wholly to God, uh, spirit, soul, mind, and body, and let the Spirit of God just take control of your life. And that is the key, and that is the answer. I, cannot, I can't say it well enough. I can't speak it good enough. God the Holy Spirit has to take this truth and apply it to your heart. And your heart and your mind and your soul has to be receptive so that you are like David who says in the psalm, as a deer pants for the water, so my soul pants for you, O God. If that is not in your spirit, you're not going to have it. If you don't hunger, blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, they will be filled. God is not going to torment you. God is not going to like tease you. If you hunger and thirst for him, he will pour out himself on you. And sometimes we talk about terms of salvation and sanctification as though they are things. They are not things. It is him. He gives you himself. And God the Holy Spirit takes up residence and presidency in your life. He takes up superintendency in your life. And so he leads you and guides you the steps of a good man or a woman. I said that for you ladies. The steps of a good man or a woman are ordered by the Lord. So so that is all the difference in the world. Now I'm going to throw a term at you that we don't commonly use and you'll understand why. It It is one of John Wesley's, the father of Methodism, uh, and, and in the Eastern Church, it is regularly used, not so much used in the Western Church. Now, when I say the Western Church or the Eastern Church, I'm not talking about uh, California as opposed to New York. I'm talking about Asia, uh, Eastern Europe, as opposed to uh, Europe, uh, Western Europe, and United States, and those kinds of areas. So it's geographically, uh, so you have the Eastern Church and the Western Church. There's a term that the Eastern Church is not, not uh, afraid to use. It is a term that we almost don't use at all anymore. And it's this phrase, Christian perfection. And now you can understand why we wouldn't use that a whole lot because everybody knows nobody's perfect. <clears throat> and so we, we shy away from the word, but the Eastern Church fathers... And the Eastern Church leaders do not shy away from that word, and neither does the Bible, and neither did John Wesley. They talked regularly about Christian perfection. So uh, it, it is, it is uh, a perfection of, of life, and it is lived in the world in this present age. Um, for, for Wesley, for sure, this concept of Christian perfection or of heart holiness or of sanctification or uh, of, uh, of uh, purity of heart, they're all the same thing, is the very kernel, it is the very heart of what God is trying to accomplish in the human family. Can you imagine? I mean, it would solve the problems. If, if, if the people of God uh, uh, had hearts purified by the Spirit of God, uh, 
so many of the problems in the world would just disappear. They would just disappear uh, because uh, a people led by the Spirit of God just behave and act different. You can actually see it. It's actually manifest in the way one lives, in their demeanor, in their lives, in their actions, in their habits. It actually manifests itself. You, you, can, just, you can just observe it and, and basically see it. Now, that doesn't mean that they don't ever uh, make a misjudgment or they're not wrong sometimes or that their performance is always like perfect in the sense of, uh, a perfect in, in, the, in the Western sense, and I'll get to that in just a minute. But they just carry themselves in such a way, and there is such a spirit about them that you know that there is a marked difference about this person or these particular people. Now, uh, perfection is not a word that we use, as I've said, and, and we understand why, because it, it leads to confusion about what we're trying to say. But there is a scripture given by Jesus that we need not shy away from it. It comes out of Matthew chapter 5 and it's verse 48. And Jesus gives these words. You be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Uh, that's in the Bible. I mean, it's the words. It's not like Paul said. I mean, it's, it's enough for Paul to say it. But this is from, <clears throat> I might need some water. <coughs> uh, uh, this is from the lips of Jesus recorded in the Gospels. Not only that. In the Old Testament, it says of Job, Job was a perfect man. So the Bible doesn't show away from it. Ananias was a perfect man. It says of Abraham. Now, now listen to this. Now, that tells you that when the Bible says perfect, it doesn't mean the same thing that our Western mind reads as perfect. It says of Abraham, he was a perfect man. It says of Noah, Noah was a perfect. It uses this language about these particular men. So we know that it's a biblical concept. And, and, and it was Wesley's favorite term, or among his favorite terms, and the Bible regularly uses it, and Jesus commands it. So it's something that we have to deal with. It's something that we have to process. What in the world are we talking about? Well, let me explain to you. Very, very, most of you know this, but by way of just, just bringing it back to your mind, it's important to know. Yeah, because last time I didn't know where to put it, and uh, that's why I have a wife. Help me know where to put bottles of water and many other kinds of things. Thank you very much. Okay, so here, this is the deal. This is why there is a difference. One of the reasons why we don't use it anymore, and I, and I say this out of a humble spirit, and out of a humble heart, and, and in, in no sense, um, in any kind of condescension at all, one of the reasons why the church in the West, and particularly the United States, and probably in Europe, have shied away from using the term is because of biblical illiteracy that pervades our culture. We don't understand it anymore. We don't know what it says. Uh, we don't know how to divide it. We don't rightly divide it. And so we have all kinds of stuff, and we shy away from words that the Bible regularly uses to describe God. For instance, like holiness. We just kind of shy away from that word. Like, who is holy? What is holiness? That's God. That's all God. It has nothing to do with us. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, you be holy because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. But we shy away from that because, well, that just might not set very well with people. People just might be uncomfortable with that. But the Bible isn't comfortable with that. And both the Old Testament prophet uses it and Peter uses it in the New Testament. You be holy because we serve a holy God. And you be perfect because your heavenly Father is perfect. 
Now, let me tell you the difference, because it's the difference between a Eastern mind and a Western mind. We generally are shaped by Latin, uh, by, by, uh, by, by Greek philosophers, uh, and, and we are, we are, our language is largely shaped in, in the Latin more than the Greek. And the Greek perfectio means absolute perfection. Like, we don't see that here. Even in the Greek philosophy, perfect was something metaphysical, outside of the physical world. It's an idea, it's a concept, but it doesn't exist here. It only exists in a metaphysical kind of way. But in the, in the Eastern mind, to be perfect, teleosis, is, is a process of becoming or performing as something is intended to be or to be used. Now, do you understand, the? do you kind of follow the difference in that? One is a, a, a philosophical, uh, abstract kind of concept about something that potentially could be in another dimension. The other one is very practical, very functional, so that something is perfect if it is being or becoming as it is intended to be or becoming. And, and that's why the Bible uses the word, you be perfect. Because as one surrenders themselves to God and walks in obedience to the Spirit of God, then that person is a perfect person. Now, they may make mistakes in judgment, in, in, in personality defects. They may, they may be late all the time, but their heart is, is perfect. Their heart is pure, and they're serving God. Now, you and I would look at them, we could see all kinds of blunders. Go, that is not a perfect person. But see, you're talking out of a different concept. You're using a, a philosophical concept of what is perfect. The Bible is talking about how something is, a, is, is serving as it is intended to be served. For example, a commonly used example and illustration is like a pencil. Now, your pencil may have teeth marks on it. Like if you're one of those people that sit in the office or sit by your desk and put your pencil in your mouth. You probably don't do that these days. But I remember as a kid, I would put my pencil in my mouth, and I would make pencil marks on my pencil. Anybody ever do that? And so, so these little marks, you know, because that wood was kind of soft, and you could just imprint it really easy. But guess what that pencil would do quite well? Even though it had my teeth marks on it, when I had to write a, a word or a sentence or, or a math problem, it would, just, it would write very, very good. Now, you look at that pencil. That pencil was, like, really messed up. But, but from a biblical sense, from a heavenly point of view, from a practical point of view, the pencil did exactly what the pencil was intended to do, right. So, so you could look at my life and you go, that boy, just he just doesn't have two cents to put together. You know, or you could say, that is the dumbest preacher I have ever met. Or you could say, man, that guy's got some cake, but he totally lost the ice cream. You know, any which way you want to frame it. But, but if, if I love God with all my heart and I love people and the Spirit of God is dwelling within me from a heavenly point of view and I'm serving God and I'm living for Him and I'm walking with Him and I'm being obedient to Him, then the Scriptures would call me a perfect person. So, so that's just, that is kind of the difference. It talks about the end or the goal of the thing, the purpose, the purpose of a thing. Now, None of these concepts, even the teleosis, which is, which is the Greek word that we, from which the Bible we get the word perfect, it is not a static concept. And what I mean by that is, I'm not talking about the static that sticks you when you pull clothes out of the dryer. 
or if you scoot your feet on the carpet and, and you touch somebody and you get a little electrical shock. Not that static. Static as in something that is fixed or lacking development. Not that kind of static. It's very dynamic, meaning that it is, it is alive, it is moving, it is growing, it is expanding. And God is involved in this process. So who I may have been, this is why I say, see, none of us have arrived. All of us are always arriving. If you've arrived, you're dead. Please listen to me. None of us know everything. None of us are always right. None of us know all that needs to be known. All of us continue to grow and develop. Thank you for those amens. I want to make sure that you got that. All of us are growing. So if I'm the same person I was 10 years ago, I'm dead. Because God will not leave me like I was 10 years ago. Like sometimes, you know, I, I keep most of my sermons. Sometimes I throw them away, but I try to keep them. Sometimes I look and I go, yeah, that's not worth keeping. I don't, <laughs> if you ever preach a sermon or taught a lesson, you go, yeah, I'm not going to keep that one. And so what I'll do, I'll go back 10 years ago, and I'll go, let's see, what, what did I preach at this time last year? Like, yeah, there's no way I can preach that now. Because I've grown, I have learned. Some of the phrases I would have used then, I won't use now. I will know more about the words that, I, that now, after 10 years of growing and studying and learning, some of the temperaments and some of the, the mannerisms I, I may have laid off, so it just doesn't fit anymore because I have grown. And so we are always growing, which is about this process and this dynamic of life. But this is the beautiful thing. And I just have to pray. I just have to pray that God the Holy Spirit can take these words and, and, and penetrate our hearts and our minds and apply them to our hearts so that so that Jesus is glorified, so that the Spirit of God can, can use them and, 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 and penetrate our hearts and minds and so that what needs to take place in our lives can, can take place. What, what this actually is, is as, as, uh, as, as Peter talks about, is that as we lay ourselves before God, as we surrender moment by moment to God, this is an amazing thing. And I know that you know this, but I want you to know it in a deeper way, in a fuller way, in, in, a, in a richer way. And only God, the Holy Spirit, can, can bring that to you. Is that the amazing thing is that we become partakers of the divine nature. What a high calling. What a high honor that God would condescend or come down to us and put part of himself within us. We become partakers of the divine nature. So that's why Paul says, in him we live and we move and we have our being because in him we live and we have received him in, in, in our very core and the very essence of our lives. Paul talks about this, that Christ in me is my hope of glory. Now, the Hebrew writer says this in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 10. For a little while, our fathers, our earthly fathers, punished us. Anybody get that? Anybody ever experienced that? I could tell a story, but I got to move on. For a little while, our earthly fathers punished us when they thought they should. God disciplines us for our good. Now, why does he do that? Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 10. So that... We will be holy. So that we'll be holy. That's why he disciplines us. 
so that we will be holy as he is holy. So there it is at least three times in the scriptures. In the Old Testament, Leviticus, uh, 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 I think it's Peter, it's sort of either James, it slips in mind right now, who says, behold, because I am holy. So here it is, the Hebrew writer, God disciplines us so that we will be holy because he is a holy God. And, and, and Peter says that we become partakers of the divine nature. And see, that's why individuals who surrender themselves to God as the deer pants for the water, they hunger after God. The heart that hungers will be filled. The soul that hungers will be filled. So, so, so Peter continues this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. And he says this, after he says we become partakers of the divine nature, he continues to say, so do your best. I mean, you don't want to act slipshod about it. You don't want to act willy-nilly about it. So he says, do your best to add holy living to your faith. Do your best. So put into practice what, you, what we say is in our heart. <clears throat> now, God is the judge of that. Because as I said earlier, for my friend Carrie, it's amazing the amount of opinions there are about various things for the people of God. That's why Paul says, let every man be persuaded in his own heart. Because you're not going to give an account to the church of the Nazarene. You're not going to give an account to a general superintendent. You're not going to give an account to the pastor. You're going to give an account to God. So let every man and every woman be persuaded in their own heart. Um, yes. And, and I, could, I could elaborate there, but I hope that you get the point. If you, if you don't quite know what I'm talking about there, just ask me after service and I, I can elaborate on that. I just don't want to do it right now because it tends to make my sermons go longer, and that never blesses anyone. So um, trying to stay with my notes. Okay, so, so Paul writes to the Thessalonians. See, I think we, we, we just sell ourselves way too short. We sell ourselves way too short. Paul tells the Thessalonians, be imitators of Pastor Brent. <laughs> That's, yeah, just laugh at that. Be imita- no, he said, be imitators of God. Peter says, you are a partaker of the divine nature. So the, so the goal, the, the, the model, the image, the, destines, the, the destiny, the target is, is the heart of God, the spirit of God. <clears throat> now, there is a final perfection. We generally call that glorification that, that we will attain when we, go in, when we go to heaven, when this life is over. Someday, when this life is over, we'll fly away. But there comes a moment. There will come a moment. And God is gracious and God is kind. And he knows that we are feeble and he knows that we are frail. And uh, he knows that just because the preacher said it doesn't mean that we get it. And the Holy Spirit will come again and again and again. But there comes moments in our lives. And this is really, really important. There comes moments in our lives where we are confronted with ourselves, There will come a moment, there will come a time, sometimes it's described as a crisis moment in our life. And a crisis moment means you may have to make a decision to go one way or the other way. It's an opportunity to go forward <clears throat> or an opportunity to go backward. There'll come a point, there'll come a time, there'll come an incident, there'll come a person, there'll come an attitude, and the Spirit of God, who is so faithful, will speak to us and, and reprove or correct us about that decision, about that word, about that action, about that behavior. 
And so you'll be confronted with that. And, and all the more as, as the word of the Lord is in your heart and life. So he will call us, the Spirit of God will call us to a deeper, fuller, richer obedience to peel that off or to lay that down or to let that go. And this is what will happen. You'll either grow richer, deeper, fuller, or you'll stagnate. You'll stagnate. I dug in some dirt this past week, and I got into an area that water had obviously been sitting there for a while. And, and I knew it because the mud stunk. The mud stunk. And I was glad when I got past that point so I didn't have to smell that. And what happens in our lives if we, if, if we see, the Spirit of God will come along and say, let that go. And, no, I want to hold on to it. Lay that down. No, I want to pick that up. Serve here. No, I want to serve myself. Yeah, you know, love them. Love them. No, I, they're, they're too ugly. They're too mean. They're too, they're too nasty. I can't. So, so he'll be pulling us and prodding us on to reflect who he is in the world, in this present age. So it can be said of you and of me, that is a perfect person. They are being exactly as I have called them to be to the degree that they understand and to the degree that they, that they have light and understanding on that. And they're walking in that. So you'll either grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord or you'll grow mediocre or nominal. And I'll make a judgment call. And I'm not God. I'm just, just a judgment call. It could be completely wrong. It's like a referee. That ball is right down the middle and he called it a ball. I'm sure if you watch baseball at all, you've seen that. So it's just Brent. I'm afraid there's too much nominal Christianity around. It's, it's Christianity in name only, not in heart or passion or fire. Terry, come on up. I asked Terry to play a song at the end. That gives you a clue. You can take a sigh of relief. Terry's coming up. You're going to experience your, pro your salvation, salvation in two processes. And you'll, you'll recognize this. Now, you may name it differently. You may title it differently. You may put it in a different systematic kind of form. You may have different terminology for it, but the outcome is the same. Whether you articulate it like I do or not. One, you will recognize acts of sin. And if you have been taught, even nominally, you'll recognize acts of sin in your life. And the Spirit of God will come and you'll be under conviction and you'll ask forgiveness of those sins. And the Bible says that if we confess our sins, that He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so you'll go along like that. And you'll find that there are besetting sins. There are things in your life, attitudes, dispositions, ways of being, ways of acting, behavior, hot-tempered, mouthing off, gossiping, whatever the case may be. And, and the Spirit of God says, wait, that's, don't be doing that. That's not me. That, that's, that's not perfection. That is not holy. You know, lay that down. But it's such a deep ingrained pattern, and it's hard to lay it down. And so you keep having to ask forgiveness about that. You keep confessing that, and God keeps forgiving that. And the Spirit of God says, I need you to stop that. I need you to stop that. 
And what you might not know from terminology or just as theology, but maybe in common sense, is that there is a deeper problem. There's a problem that goes deeper. Because every human being is born with a sinful disposition. Theologians call it original sin. The sin that you were born with. David says in the Psalms, in sin I was shaped in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. That doesn't mean his mother. He wasn't referring to his mother's behavior. He was talking about, in fact, one translation says, I, I came forth out of the womb in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. I, I came into the world like this. So in, in, in the first sense where there are acts of sins, you have to be forgiven of those. You have to ask forgiveness of those. And God is faithful and He is just and He's loving, He's kind, kind and very compassionate, and He forgives those. But the second one, the second one, it's not your fault, so you can't ask forgiveness for it. You, you can't ask, you didn't do anything to do it. You, you, just, you just have it. It's like, it's like you just went to the store or, or some neighbor was too, standing clo too close by and, 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 and you got a virus. You didn't do it on purpose. You just have it. You didn't even try. You, you were trying not to get it, but you have it. So it is with original sin. You just came into the world with it. The only remedy for that is cleansing and purging. We call that the sanctifying grace of God. Now, the whole process of salvation is sanctification. But the Bible talks about this journey of faith and of redemption and of salvation where one is confronted with themselves so that they are in this present age entirely, or the King James says, through and through, sanctified. That means they have surrendered their life to God. Now remember, it's a dynamic thing. It's dynamic, it's not static. So, so like if in a revival somewhere you were really convicted and you were, you were moved and you came to the altar and you asked God to sanctify your heart. It is a dynamic thing. It's not a static thing. So, <clears throat> so you walk in the light of that and, and you keep walking and God keeps purging and cleansing and sanctifying and, and sanctifying and cleansing and filling and filling. But it's dynamic. It's alive. And you're a living being. So you may get confronted with an incident, with a person, with a situation. And in that moment, you have to surrender to the Lordship of Christ again. And day by day, and with each passing moment, and with each passing trial, and with each passing fiery trial, you lay it down. And you surrender it to God. I got to finish. So I want to ask you, as far as you can tell, have you ever had a crisis moment in your life? Where you laid it all down before God and asked God to fill you with himself. Now, our language can be so confusing because when you got saved, he gave you himself. 
But then this thing we call sanctification is where you give all of yourself to him. If you see, when you got saved, when you came to the altar and prayed, or you're in your car, you're sitting at home, you ask God to forgive you of your sins, and he does. And he moves in to your heart and life. That's what he said, come into my heart, Lord Jesus. But in this sanctifying thing, it's where you give yourself wholly, completely to him. And he does a sanctifying, transforming, changing work in your heart and life that nothing else in the world, communion, prayers, rituals, forms, songs, nothing else can take its place. Jesus models it in Gethsemane. Now, he had no sin, neither was sin found in him at all. And he did not battle original sin like you and I do. But he modeled what it was like laying down his life in Gethsemane. When he prayed the prayer, knowing what lie ahead, the torture, the insults, the beating, and he prayed, Father, is there another way to accomplish your purpose in my life? I really don't want to be around that person. I really don't want to forgive that offense. I really don't want to serve that way. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I am yours, Lord. Everything I am, everything I've got, I give it to you. Thanks for joining us at Central Church today. If you'd like to get involved, please visit us at centralnazarene.org.